Uh, I hope you're in Mark 14. We've been stepping through Mark for quite a number of months now. This is uh, part 29 in our series, Going Through This Gospel. As we've been striving to see what we have been calling Jesus, the unexpected Messiah, as we have seen him throughout this gospel. And here it brings us to Mark chapter 14, which is sort of the beginning of the end, so to speak, in terms of looking at Jesus' life. We have been traversing through what we know as Holy Week uh, since about chapter 11 of this gospel. And here, in chapter 14, this chapter is very much indicative of the rest of the gospel. It's a chapter that covers a lot of ground. If you just read these 72 verses... You'll notice it goes all the way from the beginning with the Lord's Supper, all the way through when Peter denies Jesus uh, as things are in motion to crucify Jesus. So it covers a lot of ground. We've noted that uh, since the beginning of our study, that Mark is, that's sort of his uh, technique, that's his style. He, he jumps to scenes, he's quick, he's, he doesn't spend a lot of time with a lot of unnecessary details. He gets into a story, he gets out and he moves on, he keeps the pace moving. Uh, this chapter is very much like all of that. But I think what is fascinating to me is at the beginning of the end of Jesus' life, so to speak, is that Mark places emphasis on this scene at the town of Bethany. The verses that Pastor Nathan read will serve as our text. With this scene of this, at least in Mark's gospel, this unnamed woman who comes to Jesus and anoints him with this very expensive jar of oil. And it's a scene that's unexpected, as you might expect in a weird way. But it's also a scene that's intriguing and scandalous and full of just so much controversy. Some of the controversy is actually just because, um, uh, because of the sequencing of this event when you compare it with other Gospels. You don't have to turn there, but if you, you can find this scene in Matthew's Gospel and in John chapter 12. It's interesting because the sequencing of events, at least as recorded in Mark and in Matthew, place this event at the same exact time frame. If you look at Matthew's Gospel, it's recorded the same way as it is here. But John, however, places this moment... Right before, actually, Jesus' triumphal entry. That is actually back for us in chapter, uh, chapter 11. And that's where John places this moment. This moment of Jesus with his uh, apostles. And they're here. And this woman comes and anoints Jesus with this oil. And if you look at that scene, it, it's a scene where we know that it's Jesus dining with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, some of his closest friends he is with at Bethany. Bethany is a very important city in Jesus' life. It's a city that he returns to quite frequently. And actually, as we've been looking, all throughout this, uh, these days beginning in Holy Week, he's been traversing back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. And here, though, it's, it, this has led some to believe that these are two separate instances. Or actually that if you would take into account Luke chapter 7, that there's actually three different instances of Jesus being anointed. Which might be cumbersome to some, but I actually don't believe that that is the case. I think Luke 7 is a different moment altogether. We won't get into that. That's for a different time. But actually, I think Mark, Matthew, and John, if you look at each of those chapters individually, they're repeating the same event that happens at the same time, but for different purposes. John, of course, is doing something different with his gospel, which leads us back to what we've been saying from the beginning. These gospels that you have in your Bibles are not biographies. 
They don't tell you every single thing that happened in Jesus' life. They are, I like to think of them are like, like essays. They're an essay about Jesus that are written from a certain perspective to prove a certain point. And the point that I think Mark is making is that this, this Jesus, who is the king, he's an unexpected king. Because, like we noted from Mark chapter 10 verse 45, he is a king who has not come to be served, but to serve. He's unexpected in that way because he's not like any other ruler that would come and assert dominance because he doesn't assert dominance. What does this ruler come to do? He comes to die. And in that way, and in that sense, I think that's where you can see that each of these gospel writers is writing for a different purpose. They're showing you sort of a different angle, a different side to this diamond, if we might liken him to that, of Jesus Christ. And I think he places this moment here. He places this moment here at this point in time to show us this incredible difference between the acceptance of faith that is on display by this unnamed woman and also the antagonism of unfaith. Because you'll see that as it is contrasted between two different scenes of outright rejection. I want to look at that really quickly. So look at verses 1 and 2. I want to go through three different lessons that these scenes show us. That show us uh, something about this Jesus and his good news, his gospel. And his grace. And those who reject it and those who accept it. The first lesson I want you to look at is in verses 1 and 2. Which is a lesson about retribution. Look at these verses again. After two days, it was the Passover And the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, that is Jesus, by trickery and put him into death. Or put him to death. But they said, not during the feast. Lest there be an uproar uh, of the people. So it's now two days before Passover. The day when all things will kind of come together, come to a head, so to speak. The time is drawing near for when that moment when, with which Jesus has been preparing the whole time, the cross, that is approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes, as they are often joined together and associated, they have been plotting and scheming. And now they are, they are pressing into that plot in order to take this Jesus, as it says there, by trickery and put him to death. They have utterly resigned themselves to this point that they need to get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth and his troublesome teachings. He's just everywhere causing us angst and trouble and annoyance. Let's just get rid of him once and for all. If you remember, uh, all the way back in Mark chapter 3, they had started this conspiracy. They've been planning something in order to get rid of Jesus for a long time. And in their minds, they're probably thinking, we have just put up with this Galilean guy for far too long. We just need to to get rid of him. Especially since he just outright embarrassed us yesterday in the temple. If you remember from chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 12, Jesus outright embarrassed the scribes and the Pharisees and even a group of Sadducees as they come to him and ask him a question about all these different things. They're trying to expose him. And what happens is, Jesus ends up exposing them. (laughs) Exposing their complete uh, disregard and failure to receive and hear and hold the truth that they had been given. So, no doubt they are motivated. Motivated by that embarrassing display. And now, we just need to get rid of this guy. 
But notice, notice their prevailing thought. Look again at verse 2. They, they want to take Jesus. They want to put him to death. But notice it says, not during the feast, not during the Passover, lest there be an uproar of the people. What's the still prevailing thought in their mind? Their reputation. They're still only focused on the fact that if we do something in an incorrect way, we're going to lose our reputation. We're going to lose our standing in the society. We're going to lose our, our, our positions of power. We're going to lose our recognition on our ranks of authority. So we've got to do this carefully. We've got to do this subtly so as not to lose those positions. But we need to get rid of this guy. See, if uh, no doubt Jesus had stirred up a lot of people that were sort of uh, um, aligned with his cause. They were sort of for him, and not necessarily for uh, his gospel per se, but they were aligned with Jesus because he was a man who spoke healing words uh, physically and spiritually. And here they know that if they take Jesus unnecessarily, or at least in, in a way... That would cause a riot. That more Roman dominance would come in. More Roman power would, be, would, be, would come in into their city. And there would be more Roman oversight and rule. And the Pharisees of course did not want that. And so you can see here. They forfeited their religion again. For the sake of their reputation. For the sake of what men might think. They were still processing what they wanted to do with the fact that we need to be careful. We need to be careful what people think, what they will think of us. But I want you to notice because I think it is easy to demonize these guys. We can read the Gospels. We can read Jesus' interactions and conversations. We can read each scene where the Pharisees, the scribes, those guys, they pop up. And it's easy to demonize them and vilify them as if they are the bad guys of the Bible. They're the bad guys. We need to get back at them. I think we think about that too often. I think it's because we're accustomed to reading like good versus bad type of stories. We need to have a bad guy that we can assign all of our motivations against. And we make the apostles then sort of the good guys that have to go against the bad guy Pharisees. I think in some respects that's okay. The Pharisees of course and the scribes they never do with themselves any favors to present themselves in positive lights. They're constantly misconstruing and misconceiving the ways of Jesus and, they, uh, and, and all of that. And they are constantly uh, fumbling over themselves with trying to keep their reputations and their religious practices and whatnot. But it would be a mistake to assume that they are, quote, the bad guys of these narratives. Because the only good guy of the Gospels is Jesus himself. He's the one hero of the narrative, we might say. Everyone else is one who completely misses the mark. Even his own apostles. We've noted that several times throughout the gospel. Especially as Jesus has pressed into the fact that he's going back to Jerusalem to be crucified. His apostles almost at every turn have missed the point that Jesus is trying to make. Most obviously when he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he is completely in his glorified state. And they miss that point too. They remain pretty sort of dense and narrow minded. 
And for as much as Jesus taught them and invested in them, they never put it together. And in fact, the apostles won't really ever put it together until after the resurrection. When finally Jesus comes back in his glorified body and he presents himself to them. That's sort of when all, everything clicks. I've, I've talked about it before, but you can see that if you look at John chapter 20. And then you look at Acts chapter 1 and all the way through the Acts. All the way through Acts, there is a marked difference between the apostles that you read of in the Gospels and the apostles that you read of in the book of Acts. Remember last week we talked about it. Uh, when, when Jesus is predicting what they would go through. You're going to be taken to councils. You're going to be scourged. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be hated. I just imagine these apostles at this point having like deer in the headlights faces. And yet, after the resurrection, what do you see? You see Peter boldly standing before any council, declaring into the face of the Sanhedrin. By the way, the same body which conspired to put Jesus to death. And he stands up to him and says, you are the ones that crucified him. You're the ones who did this. That boldness, that confidence comes From seeing the resurrected Christ. But all before that. They didn't get it. They didn't put it together. The scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't either. They were self-righteous and self-sufficient. They thought that they could be, uh, be righteous and holy in and of themselves by the things that they could do and accomplish. And all of the things that they were, that they were uh, practicing and adhering to. But I've often wondered. Maybe you've wondered this too, but I've often wondered what motivated them to carry out this, such, this, this, this plan of such violence and cruelty against this teacher. Surely they could recognize the fact that what he was saying was different, that what he was preaching was different. We've noted from the beginning, actually it's all the way back in Mark chapter 1, where it talks about people recognize that this Jesus, he spoke differently. He had authority and power behind his words. Surely they recognize that. What would motivate them? What would inspire them to, to conceive of such an evil plan to put this Jesus to death? Remember, these are religious people. They are people with suits and ties, going to church, going to synagogue, doing the, quote, right things. The things that were expected of them. They were people that you would never expect to have this type of black mark in their records. These are church people, we might say. Well-respected leaders and authorities in spiritual things. They were ones who were, who were sought out for matters of duty and ethics and piety and uh, decent practice, we might say. They were people that uh, uh, crowds went to them, flocked to these teachers of the law for guidance and counsel. How could they be moved? To execute such a brutal plan against another person. Against another teacher. Was it just because they were scandalized by his message? Perhaps. How could they though talk so freely about murder? They know the law. 
They're lawyers. They are experts on the Mosaic law. They know what the Ten Commandments say. They know the Decalogue. They know all of the little ins and outs of the Old Testament law. Surely they know that talking about murder is a violation of that. Yet they talk about it freely. Let's put this guy to death. And let's do so in a way where we don't lose our position. So callous and inhuman almost. It's easy in that sense to sort of make them the villains, but it's, it's also tragic. Because when you see, when you look at the scribes and the Pharisees, you see a group of religious men who are moved and motivated nothing but, by, by nothing than just a hatred of Jesus. One commentator, G. Campbell Morgan, he says it this way. Their hatred of Jesus was consequently of one who had revealed their failure. And I think that's precisely the point. They had lofted themselves up to such high degrees. Look at us. Look at how amazing we are. Look at, we have it all together. We figured this thing out. Be like us. Practice the things we practice. And what does Jesus come and do? You have missed it. You are failures and frauds. They're moved. They're moved to execute this plan against Jesus. Because they had, they had been revealed as failures and frauds. They knew. Remember back in, in chapter 12. Where Jesus tells them the parable of the wicked vine dressers, the wicked, uh, wicked vineyard uh, workers. It's at the beginning of chapter 12. Remember, we pointed out that this is one of the most easy parables to understand. Why? Because the Pharisees themselves, they understood it. They understood what Jesus meant. They understood the picture that he was trying to portray. Which is what? That he is the vineyard's owner's son who is killed and conspired against and killed by the wicked vineyard owners. And they are the wicked vineyard owners. They are the wicked ones who were were charged with working this vineyard. And they had missed it. They had failed. And it says there. This is chapter 12, verse 12. Maybe just read it again. And they sought to lay hands on Jesus, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They knew. They knew. They knew that this Jesus had exposed them in their failure to grasp what, the, what religion was all about, which is not rituals and sacrifices and practices. It's communion and relationship with God the Father. And they had missed that. They had missed the mark. And now they just wanted revenge. A lesson about retribution. They were just out for getting him back, so to speak. They were out to sort of oust this Jesus, get rid of this guy. He's messing up everything. And this is the tragedy of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had everything given to them and they failed. They failed to understand what this religion was all about. Which is not about necessarily the rigid fidelity. It's about faith. Which is what Jesus has everywhere been trying to show them. It's about faith. Who do you believe in? Do you believe in me? Or do you believe in your ability to work things out? I think though. I'll just... Express this for myself. I think we're often almost 
pharisaical in our perspective of the Pharisees. Again, going back to we almost demonize these guys. We make them the villains, the bad guys. And I, we belittle them for their hypocrisy. And rightly so. Jesus does the same thing in Mark, Matthew 23. But don't, don't do that at the expense of thinking that you aren't susceptible to the same things. That you also don't have the, the capacity to get sucked into a, a mode of religion where it's all about doing things. When it's all about sort of making something up to God. When it's all about being able to ritually practice my religion. When what Jesus wants and what he is everywhere trying to show. It's about a relationship with your heavenly father. It's about a relationship with this God who spoke you into existence. Who has authority over all things. And he has come through me, Jesus, his son. To have a more close, intimate relationship with you than ever. This is what he has come to reorient all of these people in this first century around. But do not think that you are somehow incapable of the faults of the Pharisees. Their pride and their self-absorption, their sort of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. They were everywhere concerned with themselves. Again, going back to their reputation, going back to how they viewed the law, how they viewed all of these things. They were moved by such wicked, venomous retribution to get back at Jesus. But notice by contrast, look at verse 3 of our text, going back to it. Because we had a lesson about retribution in these scribes and Pharisees, but look at here a lesson about devotion. Because look at this contrast. And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. There's this incredible contrast here. A stark difference between what these scribes and Pharisees, how they were responding to Jesus, and how this unnamed woman here responds to Jesus herself. We are told that Jesus and his apostles are at this house of Simon the leper. No doubt a leper who has been healed and experienced Jesus' healing words. He's a former leper, we might say. If you go to John 12, you, you can turn there just for reference's sake. But in John 12, we have the same scene. And we are told that he is actually at this table with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Again, his close friends. And we are told that this woman who comes to him is none other than Mary. Martha's Sister, the one who, if you remember the scenes, has, is always found at Jesus' feet. The one who is always found at the feet of her Lord. Listening. Listening to him. Listening to his words. Hearing his teachings. And she comes to Jesus. With, as it says in verse 3, a very costly jar of oil of spikenard. And she proceeds to break this jar and pour it over Jesus' head and over his whole body. This she does in order to honor him and to reverence him. This she does in order to show just exactly what she thinks of this teacher, her Lord, her Savior, as she likely knew. But notice, notice the reaction of the apostles. 
Look at verse 4. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Keep that word in your head. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. This act of devotion is not meant with, meant with we should worship him in like manner. It's met with look at the waste. What a waste that she has just given to this teacher. Apparently some of these apostles here in Mark's gospel is, is a group of them. And they thought that there was some better use for this expensive jar of oil. The estimated value of which is 300 denarii, which you would likely, if you put it together from other texts of scripture, is an entire year's salary worth that is conjured up in this jar of oil. That's how valuable it was. A a year's salary. And she has, in their minds, just wasted it. Broken it and wasted it over this teacher, this Jesus. You can hear them. You can hear their complaints. Look at verse 5 again. It might have been sold. We could have sold it for so much and given it to the poor. We could have. There was surely some sort of social cause we could support and it would benefit from. Other than just wasting this oil and having it spill over all the ground. There's got to be a more efficient use of this very expensive oil. They're thinking. And I think in one sense they're right. If Jesus is just a good teacher, this moment is extremely wasteful. If he's just a man who has come to do humanitarian things and do good deeds and speak good words and just talk good and make a movement, this is a waste. It's not really worth it. They could have done something a lot more beneficial. The point is... He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. Mary knew that. He's the Lord. He is not just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. And such is why Jesus speaks in defense of Mary's actions. Because she understood this moment even better than Jesus' own apostles. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Mary, as we already mentioned, is always found at the feet of Jesus. When Lazarus passed away, that other story, when Jesus comes and, and Martha is busying herself with the duties of the home, and where is Mary? She is found at the feet of Jesus. And here she comes to Jesus again. I think because she was attentively listening to this friend. Her closest friend, Jesus. She was inclined to know something about what would happen in a few short days. A few short days from now, he would have to die. 
Perhaps she didn't understand all of the extent as to why, but she comes here honoring this Jesus, and as Jesus says, to prepare my body for burial. Burial which pays for the sins of all of these people in this very room. And these apostles are criticizing her. Criticizing her for this moment of worship. They're thinking in terms of mechanics and mathematics. This is a waste. We could have just used a little bit and sold the rest. We didn't need to pour out and break the whole thing. Mary is not thinking in that way. She's moved by love. She's moved and motivated not by calculating some sort of cost that would be involved in her devotion. She is moved by nothing but love to show her Lord and Savior that you have my love. But I want you to notice. Look at verse 10 because we have lastly a lesson about perdition. And this to me is most revealing. Mark 14.10 It says, Then Judas Iscariot... One of the twelve went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Mark records the moment that he's been hinting at for several passages now. There's a moment in chapter 9, verse 31, and chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, where Jesus predicts his death. And in that prediction, he also predicts that it will come at the hands of one of his own, that he would be betrayed and delivered up unto those who would put him to death. We're told that Jesus leaves the, or Judas leaves the company of the twelve, and he contributes to this wicked scheme to get rid of Jesus. Interestingly... John, if you go to John 12, he identifies this one who has sort of spoken up in criticism of Mary is none other than Judas. In fact, actually go there. I I do want to read that verse. John chapter 12, because it's interesting to look at the words that John records Judas declaring in this moment. John 12, look at verse 4. Mary has broken this jar of oil over Jesus' head and and body. Look at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And look at what it says. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. He knows that this Judas is not saying things in a real, genuine way. He's saying things, why? Because he wants to look and appear religious. He's been embezzling money from his own friend's pockets the whole time. And this is fascinating to me. Because Judas being the one who speaks up, saying, look at this waste, is very ironic to me. If, you don't have to go there, but in John 17, we have recorded for us Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Lord in such angst and passion. And he calls Judas, in John 17 verse 12, the son of perdition. Which, to come full circle, means utter destruction 
or a waste. So this one, this man who accused Mary of wastefulness was himself called by Jesus a waste. A son of wastefulness. Because he had missed the moment. He had squandered his time with the Lord Jesus, thinking only in terms of mathematics and logic and rituals and religion and not in what Jesus has everywhere been speaking of, of faith. And he says in this moment that Jesus is not worth 300 denarii, and yet we know that he ended up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In his mind, Jesus wasn't worth a year's salary of oil. Yet he ends up betraying Jesus for nothing more than the cost of a slave. That's the value he had placed on Jesus' head. He's not worth much. Nothing more than a hired servant. What a waste. And here, this is the contrast that I think Mark is showing. By including this moment here as the plot is thickening. It's to show us. Show us the greed. Show us the ingratitude. That moved these to execute such a plan. And contrast it against nothing more than just pure gratefulness on the part of Mary. Who comes and knows not yet perhaps what the full extent of Jesus' death would entail. But she comes and knows. She knows perhaps what is going to occur in a few short days. She's grateful to this Jesus. Who healed her brother. Raised him from the dead. She knows that her master has that type of power. Has that type of authority who can speak and a dead man who is still wrapped in his clothes can walk out of a tomb. She's seen it with her own eyes. And now she is honoring this Lord, this Jesus, in the most reverent way she can think of. Therefore, this wastefulness is actually what is proper. It's interesting to me though. That this passage does not include Mary's name. That Mark includes that promise in verse chapter, uh, chapter 14 verse 9. Where, he, where Jesus says that whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world. What this woman has done, he says, will serve as a memorial to her. Without mentioning her name. And I think that's because Jesus isn't. Memorializing Mary the person. He's memorializing Mary's love and devotion. He's memorializing this, this that was on display by Mary. The better, the proper, and perhaps the only response to the good news when it's standing in the room is gratitude. Gratefulness for what has been accomplished and what will be accomplished. This, my friends, is the catalyst to the entire Christian faith. Gratefulness for what has been done and what will be accomplished in the future. You want to have your faith rejuvenated. Think about what has been accomplished on your behalf. 
Think about what is being accomplished right now in this hour. And think about what will be accomplished in the years and days ahead. Our faith is rooted in a sense of gratefulness for the Lord's cross. Indeed, there's nothing more proper than to surrender your life in response to this gospel. And such is why we see that this was not a waste at all. Because you can never give God too much glory. Why? Because you can never overestimate what happened on the cross. You can never ascribe to him too much worth. Because you can never exaggerate what he succumbed and surrendered and suffered for your sake. You can never exaggerate what he went through to save you. And this is the whole point. That just like this offering that Mary offered up, which at first glance appears wasteful, think about Jesus' offering. Jesus' offering of himself. Jesus giving of his own life for you and for me. For people who reject him. For people who spit on him. For people who turn their backs on him. And yet what does he do? He goes to the cross anyways. The grace that Jesus came preaching appears to be wasted and squandered on the wrong people. There could have been a better use for your life, Jesus. You didn't have to die. Is there anything more wasteful than seemingly Jesus dying on the cross for sinners? For sinners who would keep on sinning. For sinners who uh, do not love him. For Jesus who is unlawfully nailed to a thief's cross. In order to save those who are crying out crucify him. It appears wasteful. This grace appears wasteful. And yet Jesus ascends it. Ascends that cross and suffers all of its horrors anyway. Why? Because there is no moment in time in which Jesus is more glorious than when he is on that cross. Shouldering all the world's sin as the perfect man and as perfect God in one moment. Shouldering every single abomination, every single violent act, every single uh, act of hatred and cruelty and viciousness. Every single word of demeaning and damnation. He is bearing it in that moment as he's hanging on the cross, barely breathing and he's Buying the salvation for sinners past, present, and future. Sinners who haven't even yet been born have a share in this forgiveness that he buys right here. He is glorious in this moment. A moment what appears to be a, a, a condemnation is the coronation of a king who has come to die. The coronation of a king for what his whole life had been building up to. Remember that hymn, Born to Die? No truer words have ever been written about this Jesus whose entire purpose was to die. Not a waste. 
but to save your soul. He didn't squander his life. He saved your life. By laying his down for you. So what is your response? When this heavenly jar of grace, we might say, is broken on the whole world. What what is your response to it? Do you think it's a waste? Do you think mechanically and mathematically like Judas did? What a waste of grace. Or do you think like Mary? Who knew who she was. That she owed everything to this Lord and teacher. Who was ready to die for her. This Lord and teacher who could speak and raise dead men and women back to life. This is what it all boils down to. This grace that we preach is free for everyone. But what is your response to it going to be? The only rightful response is the response that's on display to us right here. A lesson of devotion. A lesson that is given to us by, yes, an unnamed woman who comes and devotes herself completely and entirely to her Lord. It's a lesson of gratitude. We can have Thanksgiving in June. Are you grateful and thankful for what this Lord has accomplished for you? You who know all of the ends and the outs of what that accomplishment means. Mary, who was perhaps not yet clued into all of those things. What is your response going to be to this seeming wastefulness? Let us pray.